Malcolm Honline is Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations and joins us for the weekly update from beautiful Jerusalem here at JM in the AM. Mr. Honline, welcome back to JM in the AM. Thank you. It's always good to be with you, and especially looking out over sunny, warm Yerushalayim, which is, the weather's been gorgeous here all week. Yeah, you've had a good week. Boy, yep, the, you, you get yeah, you get better weather. You, you get better weather luck than we do when we travel. <laughs> we <laughs> we br- we bring the snow and rain, and I know the rain is a bracha. I don't have to hear from everybody who always criticizes me for bringing it up, but we always bring the snow and rain. You seem to have great sunshine. You're, you're, the mission ends now. Is the, are these the final couple of days? The mission ended late last night. We had, as you know, the first week in Turkey and Cairo. In, in uh, Istanbul and Ankara, then on to Cairo, and then we started Sunday afternoon, and 75 speakers later, we concluded last night. Wow, a lot of speeches, a lot of things to say, I guess, about what's going on in this well, world, huh? especially not as everyone... all, all the speakers were the same. We were yesterday morning up on the Golan, in, on the Syrian border. We went to the Lebanese border with the commanders in the north to see firsthand the ISIS, the uh, Hezbollah outposts, what's going on there. You see the terrain, you get a very different picture than normally we would. We had many different kinds of formats, not only having the prime minister and president and everybody else, uh, every key minister, uh, but we had some really in-depth uh, uh, events. We had the, the head of the Air Force spoke, the head of military intelligence, who give you a different perspective, the Minister of Justice, the Minister you know, Bennett and uh, Lapid and uh, the leader of the opposition, Herzog. Uh, the mayor of Yerushalayim, and then we, as I said, we go out to different places at the foreign ministry where they had simultaneous briefings with all the top experts on different issues that, that we're dealing with. Or at Barilan University last night when we concluded with the defense minister of Greece and the foreign minister, uh, uh, Terzi, the former foreign minister of Italy, and then we had and other people, Amos Gilad and Aaron Lerman. Uh, so we really had a very varied and uh, very exciting and informative trip. Hope you had a chance to wish the Prime Minister a Mazal Tov on his newest grandchild. Actually, we, it happened after he had already appeared at the conference. I sent him a message, but this is his third grandchild, from his daughter from his first marriage, and uh, she's uh, religious and lives in one of the suburbs of Jerusalem. The um, I, I, We have a lot to talk about, and we could spend an entire show on the whole list of things you just mentioned. We'll get to some of them coming up. I'm just curious, is there is there any fascination with former Prime Minister Ehud Olmert entering prison this week, or it sort of was just another news story? No, not at all. I think it's, um, it has, since the beginning, captivated people. Uh, in fact, there was a poll that just came out a few minutes ago uh, at least I saw a few minutes ago that the um, that said that the majority of Israelis would like to see him live uh, complete the full term, 19 months. People are tired of the corruption and and the scandals that involve government officials. Uh, look, it happens in every country, but in Israel, it's you know becomes a national trauma. And um, I, I think that people who respect him and uh, what, you know his contributions over the years, but still, this is uh, you know it's a very serious thing, and they feel it's an embarrassment to the state when high-level officials get. And I think he's the first sitting prime, uh, the first prime minister right. to actually go to jail. 
Yeah, understood. Um, we uh, and one other thing before we go back to that list, as I alluded to, we we hear more again in the news yesterday about the stabbings in Israel, and I know that. I mean, this is the, this was the purpose of our whole trip last week was to encourage tourism and to remind everybody that all these places that are hit by by terror, they are you know obviously in the minority. Uh, the mayor of Jerusalem joined us on the air last Thursday, reiterated how. You know, percentage-wise and numbers-wise, the chances of something happening to somebody in Israel, uh, in Jerusalem specifically, is so much less than any other Western city, including New York, if his if his statistics are correct. Nonetheless, there is this, I don't know, frustration that I continue to bring up to you that I think both Israelis and those who observe the news closely from Israel have, and that is that it just seems there's no answer there's no end in sight. There's no solution that can quell these types of things, especially with the incitement at the level that it's at. I know that, you know, I, I may frustrate you by always bringing this up because I don't know if there's a good answer, but in the light of yesterday's news, is there anything to say about it? Look, there were several incidents again today, and they're going to continue, and especially if they think that they can hurt tourism, if they can hurt Israel economically, if it's having an impact. And what we have to show is that we have the resolve and the determination not to allow that to happen, that we're going to stand up to it. And, and as you said, 99.9% of the country doesn't know anything that's going on. You don't see it. You don't feel it. You walk the streets. It's safe. There are incidents. You have to be alert. But, uh, frankly, no more so than when you walk in any street today, anywhere in the world, where you see in, in Brooklyn also attacks or any place uh, uh, here, obviously there's a political motivation and, and different people. And one of the cases was a 50-year-old year old woman, woman, Palestinian woman, and another one was um, were two guys in their 20s. Uh, and, uh, you know, the people were only uh, lightly hurt by and large, uh, as far as we know from the, um, uh, from the stabbings. But Israel is doing a great job in preventing most of the attacks. They have uh, great intelligence. So I think overall, people can be secure in coming and visiting and traveling around. I brought 105 people here the last uh, week or so. Many of them are staying on. And I've not heard one word of concern or fear about security, about other things. When we traveled in other countries, we had police cars in front of us and back of us. And here we travel like human beings and normal people. Yeah, understood. Just got to convince more and more people about that. That's all. Also, um, the uh, <laughs> I'm getting the feeling we touched on this a little bit last week as the uh, you know the debates and the primaries were heating up. And I asked you last week about uh, you know the Sanders victory in the primary or, or sort of victory, depending on how you look at it. Uh, him being a Jewish candidate, obviously. I think one thing we're learning, and you mentioned last week how there's a fascination in Israel with the primaries and the whole process that's going on now in the United States for the 2016 election, which is somewhat understandable. But what might add to that fascination is it seems, and Donald Trump this week might you know, have a role in this because of how he announced his neutrality, so to speak, on Israel and Palestine, it seems that we really don't know, and I don't know if this is fair to Hillary or not, because she's been in the process a long time, so maybe this is an unfair statement when it comes to her. We really don't know the position on Israel of anybody 
that's in this race at this point. And that's really unusual, wouldn't you say, for a process to be this close. I know we're far away, but yet this close to a general election and really have no no uh, you know realistic idea of how a candidate would behave vis-a-vis Israel. You're raising a, a complicated point because, one, foreign policy overall has had minimal relevance. Two, we don't know the positions on a lot of important issues. Uh, people have talked about their positions in Syria, on Syria, etc. I think for many, the Republican candidates have long history, long records. Rubio, um, um, Cruz, others, because they were in the Senate, you know what their votes were. With Hillary, you know what she did as Secretary of State and as a senator. Right. So it's not; those are not unknowns. Uh, I think many people don't know where Bernie Sanders stands. They certainly don't have a, a clear picture of where Trump, who claims to be friendly with Bibi and uh, who has avoided taking, I think, a clear position on some of the issues when he's been pressed. But overall, foreign policy issues have not really coalesced, as have not really been given the priority. Now, I think that will change if these primaries come closer to Florida, New York, New Jersey, other places where they're going to have to start talking about Israel. And, you know, the domestic agenda has been dominant, and that was expected. And I think it was true in the last election as well, that the foreign policy issues are not uh, really the preeminent issues. And given the state of the world, and the you know, Middle East in uproar, the whole world in uproar, actually, um, and those volcanic uh, volcanic uh, eruptions that are taking place here and, and elsewhere, that that one would expect that there would be a greater uh, emphasis given to the issue. So I think while all the candidates would profess to be pro-Israel and want to strengthen the U.S.-Israel relationship, I think many of them have said it, uh, the question of what they really mean by it is something that will have to be clarified, I think, in the coming months. J.M. and the A.M. Weekly Update, Malcolm Honline Live. In Israel, uh, yeah. Last time around, we had a, you know, a track record of a president uh, who everyone could evaluate, you know, after four years and decide one way or the other. But I think you're right. I think uh, that your clarification of what I said might be might be the way to look at it. Because the, the Sanders Trump um, uh, element in this election, you know, two high profile people at this point, you know, both of whom were really not sure where they stand. I guess that's what's really throwing everybody off. When it comes to former senators and secretaries of state, I guess it is a bit easier. Any thoughts on the passing of Antonin Scalia? He has been, I, I never even realized until his passing, the the um, um, connection that he had you know, with the Jewish community and how many people you know, judged the way that he judged uh, based on, on Jewish law, frankly, sometimes. It is true, and I remember his citations and having heard him once speak about it and make reference uh, to, uh, to Jewish law, Talmudic law. Um, he had very close associations. He was a great jurist, and I think his passing is a great loss. Regardless of whether you're left or right, everybody should recognize that this was a, a great jurist, and um, you know it's going to be hard to replace him. Do you have as much fun as I have watching uh, uh, those who are on one side of the political aisle call for the president to immediately name a success, nominate a successor and others to to ask him to do the right thing and wait until he's not a lame duck president to do so? Isn't there some humor in that? 
I don't know if it's entertaining, but <laughs> you, know, you have to have a black sense of humor, I guess. But the, the, the hypocrisy is that some people who argued in the past for it and against <laughs> it, and uh, the idea that we leave it to the American people, you know, it's a year is a long time. Uh, there is a case to be made that with an election, in the heat of an election, should you make such an appointment, but it's certainly within the presidential powers, and it's going to be in Congress's power to reject or accept. So... I, I don't know, you know, that the debate is useful when they say, uh, when people are advocating and, and arguing so vociferously about delaying the process when it's quite apparent that the president has no intention to do it. Malcolm, home line is in Israel. My name is Nahum Siegel, the weekly update. You'll have it in your uh, in the app in its entirety, right? almost right after its conclusion, if you missed anything so far or, will, or plan on missing anything if you have to tune out early. So keep that in mind, it'll all be in the NSN app and, of course, on the NahumSiegel.com website. This is America's one and only Jewish Moments in the Morning radio program. Heard on listeners-sponsored WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope. Rockland County at 91.9 on the FM dial broadcasting live from the Sonia and Robert Gold Studios in Jersey City, New Jersey. Around the world on the web, jmtheam.org. You know, I, I was watching one of the pieces where you were interviewed in Israel. There is a fascination, uh, fascination is the wrong word, there is curiosity among Israeli journalists for good reason, like they would ask a leader, a Jewish leader from any other country, I believe, like France, England, etc., about anti-Semitism in this country. And it's, and it's, is, is it, is it, uh, how, how do you, how do you feel when asked to defend uh, Jewish life in the United States. Because I think that's what it basically comes down to, right? The reporter's basically saying to you through this question of anti-Semitism and what's happening here in the U.S. and whether Jews are still welcome, etc. He, he's asking, can you defend the fact that Jews are still living in a place like the United States? Well, for some, that is an underlying current. But I think for most, there's a fascination now with the rise of anti-Semitism that we see in Europe. It is not comparable here, I say. But to deny the, the realities of what's happened on American campuses, that 75% of college students, Jewish college students, say they've witnessed or experienced anti-Semitic events or um, incidents, that the, um, the numbers on, on many campuses is not a plague. This is not a, a, a comparable yet to the situation in Europe. But the BDS movement, other efforts are uh, taking hold. And in fact, we saw in Europe this week in uh, Great Britain, where they came out against the boycott in, in public sector and local authorities were banned, uh, and they, they came out cl- clearly against any participation uh, in, in a boycott. The Paris City Council also uh, condemned boycotts and, and, uh, and talked about them, that there could be no breaches uh, in, in the policy. And the fact that uh, the EU itself backed off in a meeting with uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu, that the um, Mogherini of the e- European Union uh, said that they're not going to have a boycott, we're not going to support a boycott, this is, and, and that it will be up to individual states, which is a change, because at first they were saying every country has to do it. So that is, uh, I think, an important uh, shift in their, in their policy. Um, the fact that the the um, that the numbers of anti-Semitic incidents continue to be very high in, in Europe, and that we see increases, and the biggest thing is that the vast majority, 80 percent in France, 
go unreported, and I would bet the majority of incidents in America go unreported. People don't take the time, don't want to bother, unless, God forbid, you know, it's a very serious incident, and that's a mistake. You have to report, you have to uh, let people know, and that's the only way we'll get the resources to really... Uh, to really fight it in a, in a, in a serious way. Yeah. I think law enforcement in New York and elsewhere do take it seriously. And, uh, you know, incidents are, are dealt with and, and people are apprehended. But there is a, a phenomenon ha- taking place that we can't ignore. And we have to look for ways to, to assure that Jewish students are secure, that their institutions are secure as best as possible. And, um, and this can't be swept under the rug. And I saw you were asked again about the uh, uh, Obama Netanyahu relationship, or maybe a more general, you know, U.S. administration, Israeli administration relationship. Uh, do, do you sometimes find yourself in February of 2016 wanting to say to these reporters, "You know what? <laughs> it's almost over. <laughs> Enough about this already. <laughs> we'll, we'll be on. We'll, we'll be on to new leadership soon. You don't see much changing between the U.S. and Israel." Yes, I, I do think so, but I also think that this is going to be, a, there's a long year ahead, and that this president is not going to become a lame duck president, as others, some others haven't, and some have, that I think he's going to, you know, be president until the 11 hours and 59 minutes in, in before his, January 20th, and I think he's, he's uh, that we have to look at the nature of the relationship, which takes on even greater significance when you as we did yesterday, go to the borders when we met with the top experts. We even had people from Syria. We spoke to generals on the front line fighting in Syria uh, during our conference. And when you see the ISIS uh, continue to, to uh, be active, even if their efforts are diminished, you've got uh, uh, so many destabilizing factors now in the region, part of which is driving Arab countries to reassess their relationship with Israel in a much more positive way. Right. When the countries that face the ISIS uh, growth of ISIS and spread and the renewal of al-Qaeda, for instance, in Libya uh, or in the Sinai and the, the Houthis in Yemen, when you see Iran's growing role and the fear of what will happen when the money, the huge sums of money start to really flow, I'm not convinced that that will be the case, and I'm not sure how it will impact. Uh, but I think banks and others are reluctant to, to get into the deals with them, and the oil income will be less than... Uh, what they anticipated when the price is a third of what it was when they went out of the business. But the other factors that play into to it also, the global terrorism, the Sunni-Shiite battles, the fights between uh, Russia and, and Turkey, between um, Saudi Arabia and Iran, and people taking sides, and they look at their domestic situations, the economic problems that they face, the tourism problems that they face, and they look at a country who offers a solution, and I think the Mediterranean relationship that I spoke about briefly last week, but talked about for many years here, and have been trying to push it in meetings with leaders in, in Italy, France, Spain, in Italy, Spain, uh, Greece, Cyprus, etc. And now is really taking hold. And even President Sisi said to us when we raised it that he is partnered to it also. So if you have uh, you have the cornerstones uh, laid with Egypt, Israel, Cyprus, Greece maybe Italy, Malta, I think Morocco, eventually Tunisia, others could come into it. It will, it will create a new dynamic. And the Turks look at this and say, you know, they don't want to be outside of this, this kind of a, of a situation. And it takes, it gives Israel a, a, a platform 
that is not tied into the volcano of the Middle East and to the disruptions in Europe. The fight between Russia and Turkey is very serious. I mean, there are potential incidents uh, that uh, could be could have really serious implications. Ultimately, I think both are trying to contain it. I don't think that um, you know that Putin is going to lift the ban on tourism, which has had a devastating impact in Turkey, where there are a thousand hotels are for sale now along the beaches. Uh, I think that ISIS, despite the fact that they've cut their salaries and they have a uh, they're releasing people who pay five hundred dollars uh, penalty to to get out because they're busy trying to to raise money. The uh, that still doesn't demean the seriousness of that what they're able to do and the fact that they're present in some uh, forty fifty countries today and and at least thirty one recognized branches which pose a danger to all the countries in common and and when they look at this assessment. Uh, they say, wait a second, there's one source, one stable place in this whole region, and there's no other. Nasrallah can threaten the ammonia, ammonium um, tanks in, in Haifa, but everybody knows that he says first, I'm not interested in a war with Israel now. Then he goes on to, 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 to this bravado. But it's clear that they're not looking for a conflict. They know what Israel could do, and they're not uh, looking to, to uh, expose that right now. So you have a whole series, and it's only the tip of the iceberg right. uh, that I can do now, but to see the complexity of the region and you see the role of the different parties and, Amer- and the perception that the West is is minimally involved and comes in late uh, to the situation of the aggressiveness of, of Putin's uh, involvement, certainly in Syria, uh, the arms sales, that the proposed arms sales to, to Iran and others, all of these things, you know, we're always talking about an $8 billion package. They're still talking about the getting F-380 aircraft system. And the Russians said, wait, they're not getting it until you pay for it. So you have to be careful not to fall into the trap of, of buying every story, but to know and to understand how complex the situation is and that there are positive signs. Nahum, you know that in Egypt yesterday they started using textbooks that talk about the peace treaty with Israel. Wow. And said that they ended the state of war. You didn't see that in the front page of the Times today? Huh. No. That doesn't get news. But that is a dramatic move. You know, when, when we complain all the time about the textbooks, and we did it with Mubarak for many years, and we did it afterwards, but here quietly, they instituted a change. And it says there that uh, they ended the state of war with Israel. And Egyptian students are, for the first time, reading this and seeing this. So, you know, there's so much happening. It's such a complex region, and and we saw it when we were in Turkey. We saw it in Egypt, and certainly you see it here. Talking to the the experts and people we brought from around the world who who came and, and, and talked about how everybody perceives this. And and, and two, uh, yeah. No, let's say and two observations based on what you just said that I wanted to make. And the the, fir- the first is we just don't realize the 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 image of the muscle flexing that Israel has in the Middle East. I mean, we just don't realize, you know, as you said, if you if if you expect Iran to not want to get into a conflict with Israel for any other reason other than what they know about what Israel is capable of doing, you're 100 percent wrong. It's only because they know what Israel is capable of doing, and sometimes we forget that, of course. And the other thing was, you know, you mentioned Turkey and and Russia. Israel and and and, and this is only going to get worse. Their relationship, right? I mean, you'd suspect it's only going to get worse mm-hmm. at this point. Israel has an interest in staying friendly with both of them, 
wouldn't you say? Interest, Israel has an interest has in, to, in, in, has in straddle the fence in relations. In each of them, you know, the, there was a report today that Lavrov, the foreign minister of Russia, uh, told Dory Gold, the, the director general of Israel's foreign ministry, who visited Moscow this week, that they frowned upon uh, involve, allowing Turkey to play a role in Gaza. And essentially, somebody said that they would run to the Russians, said they would block it, and they said how, and they said because we have influence with Israel. Um, but you know, the animosity with, with Turkey is very great, and it's playing out. And in, in this particular context, you know, where Turkey and Erdogan, President Erdogan, said it to us and offered his eight-point plan and wants to get very involved in the, in the uh, Gaza situation, here are the Russians coming and saying, hey, not so fast. We're not going to look favorably uh, on it. And the, uh, the risk that you could have any kind of uh, incident that, that you know, blows things out of proportion, I think the Russians... Uh, did not respond as some believe they would militarily to the uh, when the shooting down of their plane, but they're waiting for an apology and they're not going to yield on this. And they took a lot of economic steps that are having a, a serious impact. Wow! Uh, you mentioned that you were up north. Uh, ISIS, uh, you were you were shown by the generals up north in terms of where. Uh, different ISIS camps uh, are strategically, right? Is that what you told us? Yes, sir. And, and we, we, you could see, even with the naked eye, let alone with uh, binoculars, where uh, they are, what kind of infrastructure they have. We did not uh, see any tunnels, and we've asked that question repeatedly, and they say that they have no evidence yet of tunnels. The terrain is different, obviously, than uh, it is in, uh, in, from Gaza into Israel. Um, and there's a lot of speculation this week about that. Israel has developed some new technologies, clearly, and there have been the collapse of a couple of tunnels, uh, whether work accidents or induced accidents, we don't know. But uh, the fact is that, uh, that several uh, this has happened several times. The, um, the, the, the analysis of what's going on there with the foreign fighters that have come to Syria, that you have 8,000 Hezbollah, you have uh, thousands of Iranians, you have 6,000 Iraqis, you have... I don't know, 4,000 Afghanis, uh, all fighting in, in, in Syria. You have the 100 rebel groups. You have such an array of fighters, let alone ISIS, with its uh, tens of thousands of fighters uh, there. And now we see in Libya the same situation being replicated with the influx of uh, ISIS fighters, which I talked about already a couple weeks ago. And now with uh, the development of al-Qaeda, uh, organizations in uh, in in Syria in uh, Libya, and this is a threat, obviously, to Egypt, a threat to Africa, but it's also a threat to Europe because it's 300 miles all across the water to to Crete to to European uh, territory. But that, but that's what it, that's what led to my question and my observation about what you saw, uh, you know, from the Israeli border. You know, we read about the U.S. striking the ISIS camp in Libya. Uh, and uh, taking out some key operative, by the way, by the way in that operation. And it, it would just seem, in, again, arm, armchair general here, simple guy trying to figure it out, uh, if Israel knows and can identify you know, where these ISIS camps are, why isn't Israel, for instance, striking them at this point? And if the United States can identify those in Libya and other places like that, why aren't they taking more of an active role? Well, first of all, in terms of Israel, Israel was not going to strike out against anybody that isn't challenging them. Right now, ISIS is not threatening Israel. 
There was a report of a, an attack this week against uh, terrorists uh, uh, in, in, by air near Damascus. Uh, clearly, then, that would have had to be coordinated with the Russians if, if it, in fact, uh, took place. And I've spoken to people about it, so um, it, it, it was uh, tar- if it took place, it was targeting particular terrorists and maybe shipments, and Israel has acted consistently to prevent the uh, additional weapons or more sophisticated weapons getting to Nasrallah and to the uh, Hezbollah. But, you know, obviously some stuff does get through, and that's how they got 100,000 missiles there. Um, so you, you, the situation is, is very complex. But the United States uh, has conducted and today can carried out some bombing raids. They do bomb ISIS. But for Israel, Israel's interest is in staying out of this. They don't want to be drawn into the war. They don't want to take sides in the war. Their interest is seeing uh, Iran, uh, Syria try to retain some wholeness that you don't have a total disintegration, which could mean not only the outflow of many more, refu- and many more uh, refugees into the neighboring countries. Jordan is already at the tipping point. They can't take any more. Um, the, the rest of the world doesn't seem to want them, and, and Turkey is being told to close its border, and it's closing its border in places. So for, the United, for Israel... Its interest is protecting its border to make sure that they don't come closer, the ISIS or others. The fighting is only, you know, 20 miles or less away from the Israeli border. You can see the smoke. You can see something. You can hear uh, the explosions and sometimes the cannon fire, uh, the noise from it. So for Israel, what it wants is for everybody to stay away. It made it clear when it hit those that, that group that included an Iranian general a couple of months ago. For the United States, the interests are different, and here you have competing interests of the United States and Russia, France, and others. Egypt, for instance, and a lot of other countries want Assad to stay, meaning the Russians-Iranian coalition. Turkey and the United States and have said that they have to go. Whether they can find a compromise, the negotiations are supposed to begin again today about the Syrian ceasefire, we'll have to see where it stands. But there's nobody who has any surety about what direction that will t- take, and uh, but a complete collapse, a further collapse, as it is already happening, of Syria can only be detrimental. And, and there's nobody who's optimistic that Syria can be put back together again, certainly not for maybe decades. Libya will not be able to be put back together again. Uh, and, um, and these things, you know, feed the ISIS and others, and they're now seeking to take territorial advantage, and you see the spread of the hold that these uh, different factions have, let alone the Kurds, who Turkey is bombing in, uh, uh, in, in Iraq and, uh, and in Syria, uh, blaming them for the explosion yesterday in um, Tehran that took um, 26 lives and many wounded. Um, so everybody, every country has an agenda that's unique to it, and at the same time, they're all interrelated in this patchwork yeah. in the Middle East that is such a maze. And people always look for simplistic solutions when you have such complexities and, and ask, well, why don't they just you know, wipe them off the map? Because you can't just wipe off the map. And what are you going to do about all the civilian casualties? How are you going to yeah. address well, I'm, we have to see. To, you're more than being simplistic. I, I'm. I'm. I guess I'm more curious. And I think a lot of our listeners are also curious if you foresee that Israel will be a key in the eventual military battle against ISIS. 
Like, can can they stay out of that? Like you just said, hey, if Israel's not engaged, you know, no no one's starting up with them. They have no no reason, so to speak, to go and take out anything, even if it's twenty miles away from where they are. But we wonder about the future, whether Israel, along with what will be, I guess, Arab allies and other allies, will will play a role militarily in uh, in uh, taking out ISIS. I think that's a critical question. Can Israel stay out of it? A, it's, it's in an interest to stay out of it. It doesn't want to sacrifice its guys. And, uh, you know, Israel is doing a lot. Uh, we saw that how they take Syrians across the border for treatment every night. They line up at the fence, and they take them for medical treatment. They have tried to um, protect the Druze population from coming under fire. It's one of the conditions, Israel said. So the things that are contingent to their border, that could like to fight the fires uh, against them, uh, so right now, the interest of all the parties is in gaining foothold and broadening their holds within Syria. So nobody has an interest right now taking on Israel and risk getting decimated. And that includes uh, Hezbollah. But that could change. It, it will change with time, and as if they reach a ceasefire, if they do something else, they may try to unify them by turning them against, uh, it, by turning against Israel. Right now, that, that is uh, another factor. I think could see Israel, for instance, on a specific incident. The ISIS captured an SE-6 mobile anti-aircraft unit, unit, which was American, probably took it from uh, Iraqi forces or somebody. Uh, I would see them doing something to take out a unit like that. Right. Uh, I would see them getting involved in, in preventing uh, shipment of arms or placement of, uh, of more advanced weapons closer to their border, or if, uh, you know, if somebody uh, fires at Israel. Right now, it's the, the, the border is relatively quiet. There have been no cross-border incidents. There were two Russian planes that crossed over, but went a mile or two. No hostile intent. They clear, clarified it. There's very good communication, so you don't have any kind of um, untoward incident <clears throat> based on uh, an overflight as they, you know, are fighting each other. Uh, it's so complex. If, if if I would really take the time, and maybe one time when we come in, we'll talk about how each country and each battleground is so complex. If you take any one country, take Egypt, which has to worry about the border with Sudan, which is a very troubled country, Libya, which is collapsing under the <clears throat> and and is giving a way to to reestablishing of the terrorist entities there. Um, Tunisia, which is still in flux, you, you go into Syria, which Lebanon nobody even talks about, and you, they can't agree on the president uh, uh, because the divisions within the society are so great, and the role of Hezbollah is still very, very strong in in um, in, in Lebanon, and they're fighting along the border so that they show that they're protecting Lebanon from ISIS, but at the same time there's resentment about their fighting in, in Syria. You have, they have 8,000 troops, they've lost at least... Thirteen to fifteen hundred men there, and many wounded. They till now used to hide it. Now they advertise the victims because they're trying to rally public opinion. And say these are the defenders of the state. These are the people you know who rose up to stop ISIS, to stop uh, others from coming and you know raping our women and looting our cities. Uh, and and people will take advantage. Iran, Iran will take advantage of it. Those who seek to destabilize will take advantage of it. And the Gulf sees this, and that's why more and more of these countries are saying, hey, we better find some relationship with Israel. Right. And All I right. think Israel could benefit a lot from it. 
Uh, all right, enjoy Shabbat in Jerusalem. Not 100% sure about next week's schedule. We'll let everybody know exactly what's happening over the next couple of weeks in terms of the weekly update. Have a wonderful Shabbos, and we'll speak uh, speak Good soon time. again, Bezrat Hashem. Malcolm Holine is Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. Joins us for the weekly update here at JM in the AM, and uh, he is alive today in the holy city of Jerusalem.